It's a great blessing to be with you this morning. And I was, I knew I was struggling a little bit with my voice this morning. And we had a football game on Friday night. And um, so I had decided, well, I'm going to try to not sing as much anymore. And then somebody called on it as well with my soul. So can't not sing. And um, I was, I really appreciated uh, what Brother Aaron said before that. Aren't you thankful that we understand the real truth of the gospel, that Christ accomplished salvation, that no matter what my lot in this life is, no matter how bad things get, that you know, we don't deserve anything and that our, our real reward, our, our joy, all of those things is to come when sin is no more and all of those things and that Christ didn't just make that possible for me. He purchased it that He literally took my place, that substitutionary atonement is the truth, that Christ actually bore my sins. It's That's a wonderful thing, and there's a lot of peace in that doctrine, just thankful. We don't need to be arrogant about it. Um, we don't, you know, don't need to be prideful about what God has revealed to us that He hadn't revealed to other believers. You know, there's there's believers in Christ that don't have the, the same peace that we have in those doctrines, but we ought to be very thankful uh, that we can rest in those doctrines. This morning, I want us to turn to Romans chapter 15. And this is a very practical passage, but I think you will see uh, by the time we get through with it, it's going to tie in very closely to just the the simple truth of the gospel uh, by the time we get through verse 3 at the end of the message. But the title of the message is Strength That Bears Weakness. And even from that title, you can see how this would tie in to the gospel, strength that bears weakness. Romans chapter 15 and verses uh, 1 through 3. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. So that's our passage of scripture this morning. And I want to thank um, you for how much you pray during the song service. That makes a preacher feel good about getting up and opening up God's word. Because what we're all dependent on here this morning is the Holy Spirit. I'm dependent on it to be able to teach and to preach, and you're dependent on it to be able to hear and understand in a way that God would have us to understand His Word. So I want to go to the Lord one more time in prayer, and then we'll we'll jump into this passage. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, We thank You for faithful men uh, who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that You breathed out Your Word through them. We thank You that You've preserved Your Word through the years, uh, that we might uh, be able to this morning open up Your Word Uh, to study and to see more about you and how you would have us to live in this life. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, this church here, and we ask that you would continue to bless it. Be with us this morning. Open our eyes and ears to your word. May everything that is said and done be to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we open our text and we see that Paul is talking about the strong and the weak. Strength that bears weakness. But for us to really understand the passage, I'm going to go have to uh, read another passage of Scripture from Romans 14. I like to point out sometimes when we're looking at a text uh, that the numbers and the chapters and all of that are not divinely inspired. Did you know that? That they're not divinely inspired. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Those things are there so that I can tell you to turn to Romans 15, 1 through 3, and we can all be on the same page. Uh, And that's a good thing. But really, these two thoughts run together. So if you just open your Bible and you turn to chapter 15 and you began to read, you probably wouldn't have a very good understanding of what it is that Paul is saying. So we have to go back to Romans 14. And I'm going to read a passage there and then kind of summarize the whole chapter. But just to give us an idea of what the entire chapter of Romans 14 is about, we'll read Romans 14, 13 through 19, where Paul says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. 
But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. So that's just a small part of a bigger chapter. And in the whole chapter of Romans 14, what Paul's really trying to say is this. There are some young Christians who uh, really don't understand their full liberty in Christ yet. And there's there's two big issues um, that they have and that the particular things that Paul uses as examples are the celebration of particular holy days and the eating or restraining from eating of certain foods. So that's the issues that he uses. Now, I think it's obvious um, if you know me at all, you, you, if you've ever seen me before, you know that I enjoy the full liberty that we have in Christ to eat a lot of different kinds of food. Um, I don't have a problem with that. I like a lot of different kinds of food. But um, Paul uses that as an example. That may be not something that we have a big problem with this day. The other thing he uses is holy days. I mean, I think there may be some people who have disagreements about how to celebrate different days and and what's right and what's wrong in that. But for the most part, we don't have big issues with either one of those things. So in the day that Paul's writing, though, there were those who had a hard time letting go of the legalism of the law service and all the things, the rules and and all the religious things that they had to do in the Old Testament. They were young in the faith and they still kept holy days. They wouldn't eat certain things. And Paul calls them weak in our passage in Romans 15. He said he calls them weak in the faith. But now, before we go any further and actually jump into the lesson that he has for us in this, I think it's really interesting to just zoom out for a minute and see that Paul says here, I mean, you can really say this by looking at the whole passage of Romans 14 and 15. Paul says that religion that is based on rule following and formalities of observing holy days and all that is weak faith, not strong faith. That's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You would kind of think, well, you know, the person who is really strict and, and observes things and, and he says, no, there's liberty in Christ. There is a freedom in Christ. And so he calls that weak faith. Now, let me be crystal clear here. He's not saying you go do whatever you want because you have liberty in Christ. These are in things that are indifferent, things that can go either way. And that's what, that's the things that we're talking about today. And that's really important to keep in mind as we go through this text. These are indifferent matters that you know, it's not wrong for them to not eat certain things, right? Or it's not wrong for them to eat certain things. It's just, it's an indifferent matter. The problem was they were imposing that on others when really there was no rule for it. So many would view it exactly the opposite way. Have you, have you ever seen Christians getting a holier than thou contest? Have you ever seen that? We're pretty good at it, by the way. You know, we, well, we do things a certain way, and because we do it a certain way, you should too. And if you don't, guess what? You're not as holy as we are, right? Now, if that's on something that's biblical, then that's right. But if it's an indifferent matter, if it's something that the Bible doesn't directly teach us, then we need to be really careful. And that's really what Paul's getting at in this passage. We need to be really careful how we handle those situations and how we handle those who are still caught up in some of that. We need to be careful how we handle them. It's, it's a personal thing. This is about people. The passage is not about the things. The passage is about the people. And so we need to be really careful how we handle people in that situation. So we're going to jump in to our text in Romans 15. In verse 1, he says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So point number one is the strong and the weak. We're going to define who we're talking about here, okay? So he says there's the strong and the weak. Point number one, there is strong and there is weak. Paul addresses this exhortation to the strong. So out of those two categories, the person that Paul is talking about is that person who is considered strong in the faith. That's who Paul's exhorting in this passage. He's not talking to the weak. He's talking to the strong. So Paul divides Christians, believers, I think that's really important too, we'll get to that in a minute, believers into two big categories, strong 
and weak. Now, I know for a fact in this room there are men that, and men and women that I would call strong in the faith. Uh, I, I may not know you real well, but I know you well enough to know that I would call you strong in the faith because of your life and because of what we've seen in your life. Um, I, I'll tell you this, I want to be in that category, right? Uh, if there's two categories and they're strong and weak, I want to be in the category that's considered strong and you should want to be there too. You should want to be in that category of those who are classified as strong in the faith. If there's, if there's a choice between two categories of Christians and one is called strong and it includes the apostle Paul, because he said, we then that are strong, right? So Paul put himself in that category. So if there's two categories and one is called strong and it includes the apostle Paul and the other is called weak and it doesn't include the apostle Paul, that's an easy choice for me. You know, I want to be strong in the faith. We should have a holy ambition to be the strongest we can be in following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not a bad thing. We should we should seek earnestly the best gifts. We should seek to follow after Christ with all that we have. We should want to be strong in the faith. That, that's a holy ambition. You know, as I was thinking about that, long time ago when I actually played sports, I wanted to be stronger. I wanted to be faster. I wanted to win. I wanted to be the best. Never was. I wanted to be. (laughs) I tried to be. You know, I wanted to compete. I wanted to do the best I could. And, And we do that with really trivial things like sports or like in our career. You know, if you're if you're in business, what do you try to do? You try to grow your business. You try to get better at whatever it is that you do. You try to move up the ladder. You try to have ambition that's in the right way and, and make wise decisions and be a better employee or move up the ladder to a higher position. But is this not much of much more significance to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be strong in that than any of those trivial things? Well, absolutely it is. So we should have a holy ambition to be the strongest we can be in our faith and in following Jesus Christ. That's more valuable than any of those trivial pursuits. So so who is it then that are the strong? Well, the strong are those that have strong faith. And we can get this from our passage. If you take uh, Romans 14 and 15 and, and, and look at the whole thing as a whole, these are who Paul is calling the strong. They have strong faith and they don't lean on the trappings of religion or tradition or man-made rules and regulations. They understand their freedom in Christ. And I think this is the most important statement right here. They are men and women who understand the Word of God and can skillfully apply that Word in matters of indifference and practical issues, even those things that don't pertain to the doctrines of the gospel. That's a lot. Let me, let me, I'm going to repeat that one. The strong are men and women who understand the Word of God and can skillfully apply that Word in matters of indifference and practical issues that don't pertain to the doctrines of the gospel. Okay, so in other words, they don't just have two verses memorized for the doctrine of election, two two verses memorized for total depravity, two verses for this. They actually can take the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God, and apply it to practical issues in their life, and especially to those things that are indifferent. That means you're strong. Uh, That means that you are digging into the Word. That is not something that can be had very easily. Okay, this takes a lot of work and takes mining in the Scriptures to get to this point of being considered strong in the faith. John Gill describes them this way. This is how he describes the strong in this passage. They are the stronger and more knowing part of private Christians. The Apostle John's young men who are strong in distinction from little children. When these young men are in the bloom and flower of profession, in the prime of their judgment and exercise of their grace, who are strong in Christ and not in themselves, in grace that is in Him, out of which they continually receive, who are strong in the grace of faith and are established and settled in the doctrine of it. They have a large and extensive knowledge of the several truths of the gospel and among the rest of that of Christian liberty, specifically for this passage, Christian liberty. So that's how he describes the strong. So, The passage is written to those who are strong in the Word, strong in the faith, who are able to apply that to their life in a real way, in practical matters. So then who are the weak? Well, I mean, of course, obviously, it's the exact opposite. These are the ones that Paul says are are weak in faith. They're still clinging to traditions 
and things that they think are significant that are not, uh, that are actually indifferent, and, and they are things that are no longer binding upon Christians who are in Christ. John Gill says they're weak in faith and knowledge, uh, particularly in the knowledge of their freedom from mosaical observances. Their infirmities that the Scripture talks about, the strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, are their ignorance and mistakes and errors about things that are indifferent. So we're not talking about gospel doctrine here, okay? This is That's not what's under consideration here. Paul is talking about things that are indifferent, things that are that could go either way, but yet some are making those issues in the church. That's the issue. They're saying, you know what? If you don't do it like I do it, you're wrong. And it's actually a matter of indifference. And instead of them being right, they are causing problem in the church because they're insisting on things that shouldn't be insisted on. Now, does that hit home a little bit? I'm not going to go into any details and I'm not going to name any issues this morning. I'll leave that up to somebody else, especially at somebody else's church. But you think about that for a minute. Are there issues that could possibly be indifferent that we allow to come into the church and cause problems because some are insisting on it and saying it's got to be my way, it's got to be this way, and yet it's a matter that the Scriptures don't address directly. Does that ever happen in the church? Well, the answer to that is yes, it does happen in the church, and it shouldn't. And not only that, Paul says you better be really careful how you treat those who are causing the disturbance, who are causing the problem. You better be really careful how you handle them. That's what this passage is really about. So so that's the weak. But now I want us to be reminded here, because we're talking about the weak, of a couple of things. First, before we go on, before we go too far right at the beginning, we must remember that both of these groups are Christians. Both groups, the strong and the weak. Both are, in our language, church members. We could just say it that way. They're believers in Christ. So both of these groups, it's not that one group are believers and the other are not. We've got to remember that. They're all in the family of believers. Both are worthy of love, care, and inclusion. In fact, when you go back into verse 14, do you remember um, one of the part of the passage that I read? It said, be careful how you handle them because Christ died for them. You think that's important? You think that person has value and worth? Christ died for that person. Even though they're weak in the faith, they're a believer in Jesus Christ. They're a follower of Jesus Christ. They are your brother and sister in Christ. So as we discuss this, I don't want it to seem like, well, we're just, man, we're hammering on the weak and, and you know, they're just terrible people. And that's not the case. These are people who are God's children who have some problems in understanding things that are indifferent. The other thing we need to say is, it's not arrogant for us to say there are some that are strong and some that are weak. Paul even put himself in the category, right? He said, we that are strong. And he expected those who were strong in the church to say, oh, that's me. That's me. I'm in that category. So don't don't jump into the false humility thing today and say, well, you know what? I could never say that I'm strong, so I must be the weak person, and I'll just have to wait on the strong to get this right. You have strong people in your church, and you know who you are, and you know that this that Paul's talking to you. So so there's no need for false humility in that. Paul doesn't mean that when you're strong in the faith that you don't have any problems, right? <laughs> that you do everything right, and every decision you make is going to be perfect. That, that There's nobody in the church like that, right? Not Not one person. By the way, not even the pastor. And I can say that here because I know Brother Lewis would amen me on that, right? He knows he's not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. So don't think that you have to be perfect to be able to say, well, I belong in the category of the strong. So just a couple of of warnings there before we go on. Now, secondly, so what does Paul say about that? We've defined who it is that's strong and weak. He gives the first part of the exhortation at the end of verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So the first part of that says we're to bear the infirmities of the weak. So point number two, we're going to have kind of three things here that Paul tells us to do in point number three. Bearing, pleasing, and building up or edifying. I chose to use the word building up instead of edifying because some people may or may not understand what edification really is. So bearing, pleasing, and building up. So how then do we get along together as fellow Christians or fellow church members even when we have strong and weak and we have this tension between the two? How should the strong and the weak interact? 
So before we move on to the details of how Paul says we should interact, there's there's a, another kind of really important side uh, issue here that I'm going to go back to that I said earlier. Who is Paul putting the responsibility on in this passage for making this relationship correct? That's a really important thing, by the way. Who is Paul putting the responsibility on to get this right? It's not the weak. It's not the weak. Paul says it's the strong. It's your responsibility to make this work and to get this right. So Paul addresses the strong. He, he doesn't say, hey, all of you weak church members, you need to get your act together and you need to get it right and you need to quit going back to the Mosaical law. You need to quit all that stuff and you need to get right because you're dragging down the strong. That's not Paul's exhortation. He doesn't even address the weak. Isn't that really interesting? He addresses the strong and says, this is something you need to do and you need to make priority and you need to make sure that you don't offend these people in the meantime. It's a really interesting uh, way to look at it. Probably not the way we would come at it directly. So he addresses the strong and he says, you should be a part of the solution. and In the meantime, you should treat them in a particular way. That's really what he's saying in our passage. So his purpose here is to help the strong Except people who are young in the faith, immature Christians, are difficult to get along with. You could put all of those in the same same category. Conflict, you know, conflict is difficult. So why we have this passage is because Paul is saying when these two groups are together and these people are insisting on things that these people know is not right, what's going to happen? It's called conflict, right? It's conflict and there's going to have to be conflict resolution. I took a class in college called Group Dynamics. If you've never heard of the study of group dynamics, it's really interesting stuff. Did you know that if you put more than four or five people together, you're always going to have conflict of some kind? I mean, it's almost a given. So a church, hopefully you're going to have more than four or five people. You're probably going to have conflict. I mean, it's just kind of a given. Um, we all think that we know the way things are supposed to go. And for most people, maybe not everybody struggles with this, but you know, some some of us believe that, you know, our ideas are, are probably right. And not only that, we want you to know that, <laughs> that our side is right. You know, it's not just that I can be right. I want you to say that I'm right, too. I can't just be right and go about my merry way. You have to agree with me. So that's really what Paul is saying here. These people who are on these indifferent matters are being insistent. They're saying, no, 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 no. If you don't do it my way, you're wrong. And Paul says, that's not, that's not right, but be careful how you deal with them. Don't just kick them out. Don't just throw them out. Don't, cause why can you not do that? Christ died for them. They're one of God's children. We have to treat them in a particular way. So there's conflict. And most of us are convinced that our way of looking at things is right. So when we encounter people who don't agree with us, we may feel honor bound to try to convert them to our way of thinking. Sometimes that's not the wisest course of action, okay? For all of you who are married, sometimes that's not the wisest course of action. I'm speaking from experience, especially young couples. Listen to that. Go talk to anybody who's been married 20 years or more in this room. They'll tell you sometimes getting your point across is not as important as maybe keeping the peace, right? Uh, sometimes we can just say we agree to disagree or or maybe we just don't see eye to eye on that. But that's that's really what Paul is saying in this passage. So perfect, total unity and agreement. How many churches have perfect and total 100 percent agreement on every single thing? Well, the answer to that is zero. OK, even if they say that somebody's lying somewhere. OK, you might if you did it all your way, the color of the carpet might be different. Even though some pretty serious things might be different, like the way you conduct services. You may say, well, you know, I think we sing too much or I don't think we sing enough or I wish we prayed more during our song service. We only do five prayers and I wish we did 15. It, there could be a list of a 100,000 things that everybody in this room, if you had it all your way, it wouldn't be the way that it is. So there's never going to be total and perfect Unity. So then what we have to do is we have to learn how to live with one another and how to get along with one another when there is conflict. And we see that in the New Testament church. Isn't it interesting? You know, the Bible is not, it doesn't whitewash everything, does it? It tells us everything. Even in the Old Testament, look at some of the things that happened in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Murder, 
all the things, you know, uh, adultery, all the things that were mentioned. And, and, and these are people who, you know, we look up to and yet it shows all of their life, not just the good stuff. Well, it's the same way with the New Testament church. You would think that if anybody could have agreed with each other, it would have been the believers in the early church. They're only a few years removed from the personal presence of Jesus Christ. He had been on the earth in his earthly ministry just years right before the early church and these letters that we're reading. Not only that, they have the presence of the apostles who had authority from God to teach. But if you read the letters, what do you find out? You find out that there was conflict in the early church. And in some cases, a lot of conflict, even in the early church. So we understand that there's going to be differences and sometimes these differences are going to lead to conflict. But uh, we don't have a, a big problem with the differences that they did at their time. In this context, in this passage, it's about the differences between um, observing certain Jewish days and, and diet and those kinds of things. But we do have groups within our church that have different opinions and sometimes those things on indifferent matters can threaten to bring disunity and disharmony to the body of Christ. So we need to be careful in how we address them. And that's why Paul is writing this so that we'll know how to do that. So we have people who are quite narrow in what they feel like is proper conduct and and stuff for Christians. We have people who are broader in their views. These differences sometimes lead to conflict. So how do we deal with them? So uh, what Paul taught us in chapter 14, I think, is the overview. And now he's zeroing in on those that are strong on how they're specifically to in, in chapter 14, he told us things like that we're not to condemn one another. We're not to look down on others who see those things differently than us. Um, and that we all belong to the Lord and we all want to honor the Lord and we each answer to the Lord. You know, to remember that too. Who are they ultimately responsible to? They're ultimately responsible to the Lord. So uh, we're not to exalt ourselves too much uh, over these things. Remember, these are indifferent things. Now I've got to keep reminding us of that but we're to build each other up and not break down. So we're to bear one another's burdens. Well, how do we bear something? How do we how do we undergird those who are um, weak in the faith? And because of that, maybe having some problems with indifferent things. Well, I want to introduce a word to the conversation that's really misunderstood a lot. The word is meekness. So if you were to define the word meekness, how would you define that word? Well, it almost has the connotation nowadays of weakness. Meekness is weakness. And that is not at all what the biblical meaning of that word is. So let's see a couple of places in Scripture where that word is used. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus described Himself as two things. Meek and lowly in heart. Now, was Jesus Christ weak? Of course not. Of course He wasn't weak. But that's how He described Himself. Matthew 21, 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy King cometh unto thee meek. That's how He came. Meek. So did Christ come uh, as, as someone who had no power, no authority? No. He did take upon Himself the form of a servant, but He had power. He still was not weak. So what does that word mean then? Well, meekness, it really means this. And and I'm going to try to sum it up. And I had this big thing to read to you, and I I may or might not do that. I'm going to try to sum it up first. What it really means is somebody that has power, that has strength, that has ability, and chooses not to use it in every situation. That's meekness. So you have power, you have the ability, but you choose not to exercise it in every situation. So, simple example, you have a sword, but you choose to put it back in the sheath. Okay? You you have power, you have something that you can go at somebody with, but you say, you know what? It needs to stay in the sheath right now. It's not, it's not the right time for that. That's meekness. It's having the ability to do something and not using that against the other person. That's what meekness really is. And of course, the ultimate example of that, and some of your minds may have already gone here, 
When Christ was on the cross taking the penalty for your sin, did He have the power, if He wanted to, to come off that cross and destroy the whole Roman Empire? Absolutely He did. But you know what He did? He did not do that. He chose not to exercise that power in that situation. Um, another example, real easy one because of the sword analogy is Peter. Remember Peter when they were coming to arrest Christ? He drew his sword, chopped off the guy's ear. What did, what did he say? What did Christ say to him? Be meek, Peter. Put the sword up. That's not the way this is going to go. You put the sword back in the sheath, healed the man. I've always said, I, this is totally a rabbit trail, but I've all, I cannot mention that without saying this. How did those guys continue to arrest Jesus? Number one, he said, I am, and they all fell on the ground. Then they get up. Peter chops somebody's ear off. He heals it. And they went ahead and arrested him. I think I would have just left, probably, at that point. But they went on and arrested him. But that shows meekness. There's power. So I guess the the simplest maybe way to say this is, you know, the old... um Bully in the schoolyard thing. So if, if there's a kid who's just stronger and bigger than everybody else, if that kid has meekness, he's not going to bully other kids. He's going to help other kids with that power instead of using it, using the power he has over someone else to do them harm or, or other things. It's, it really has an element of self control, self control. So it's power under control. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it's because he cannot help himself but to be meek, right? Well, man, he's just a meek person. I've said that about other people. You know, well, you know, he's just, he's just a real quiet and meek person. And what I meant by that was he's not real assertive. He doesn't really go for it. You know, he, he's just a meek person. Well, that's a wrong definition. Yes, that's just totally wrong. Uh, a meek person would be somebody who has the ability to be very assertive and chooses not to because it's not right. That's not the right time or it's not the right uh, venue for that. So described negatively, meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness or self-interest. I think that's really important too. It's the opposite of self-interest. It's putting the interest of someone else above mine. It's um, it's not um, it's it's just not being occupied with the self to the extent that we have to do everything that we're capable of doing, and that speaks directly to our passage. So have you ever been in a position where you clearly had power over another person, but you chose not to exercise it? Now, it doesn't have to mean physical power either. It can be a scenario where maybe you know something and you choose not to share it. Maybe it is uh, something that you, you're in a position where you could ruin someone's business and you choose not to do it. You choose to, to, that's, that's really what meekness is talking about. So, so when we bear with one another, that's really kind of what we're talking about. Um, those who are strong ought to bear with, and I like the in, uh, the NKJV version of this. It says, we then that are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, we don't use that word a whole lot anymore. I mean, when was the last time you used scruples in conversational English? Uh, that's, not, that's not something, that's, that's old English. What does that mean? That means they have, they have an issue with something. You know, they got scruples about it. So in this situation, that's really what Paul was shooting at. It's actually a better translation because there were people in this place that were observing days and they had scruples about what they could eat and what they could not eat. And Paul says, you need to bear with them in those things. So how do we bear with them? Well, bearing with them doesn't mean that we just begrudgingly overlook it. <laughs> that's not bearing with. That would be overlooking. Bearing with is different. So bearing with them means we don't just kind of try to overlook them for good and move on, but we lovingly undergird them. We even has the idea of carrying them, supporting, sustaining them in the meantime. Uh, and then we should also be teaching them as well, which we'll get to that. But so it doesn't it definitely doesn't mean that we would flaunt our liberty in front of them or do anything that would encourage them to sin. As Paul said in Romans 14, we don't want to put a stumbling block in their way. We're more to be more concerned with other people's spiritual well-being than with our own comforts and pleasures. That's bearing with others. Then that's what the Bible teaches, and that really is Christ-like love. So I know it doesn't sound fair, and, and we as Americans, we like everything to be fair and equal and just in and, and, and our view of justice, uh, and it doesn't seem fair that I have to regulate my conduct by somebody else's problem 
But really, you know what Paul's saying? He's saying in some cases that might be the case. And if you have the love of Christ, you're going to be willing to do that for the good of others. That is a high bar. It's a high bar. Not just put up with them begrudgingly, but be willing to give up some of our own comforts and pleasures in things that are indifferent and, and doing what we want to do. But that's what the Bible teaches. So when, when the love of Christ is in control of our lives, that really won't be a problem for us. We'll understand that, that that's, that shouldn't be a problem for us. We'll be willing to put the best interests of others before our own spirit of selfishness. We will teach them the great truths of their liberty in Jesus Christ, not just confirm them in their weakness, but until they learn it and until they know it, we support them, we bear with them and with their scruples, and that's the Word of God, and that will also keep us from conflict when we treat them in that way. That will keep conflict from the church. So, so that's bearing with. Now, he also says please one another. We're to please one another. So what does that mean? Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So what does it mean to please others? And, and he says at the end of verse 1, not to please ourselves. Well, pleasing others rather than myself doesn't mean I can never do what I want to do. Right. So let's say there's an indifferent matter. We're going to use one of Paul's. Paul says that in this time, one of those things was, let's just call it eating bacon. So some of them said, that's a serious matter. I heard some people, you know, in the back kind of groaning. That's a serious matter, eating bacon. So if, if the issue is some people in the church say it's wrong to eat bacon. All right. Poor people. That's all I'm saying. But they don't eat bacon. So would it be wrong for you then? Would you be a bad person? Would you not be what Paul's saying here if in the privacy of your own home you cooked you some bacon and you ate it? Paul wouldn't have a problem with that. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that. He wouldn't have a problem with that. Because that affects them in no way whatsoever. Now if you show up at church with a platter stacked 20 feet high of bacon and you're just sitting there eating it, talking to them. Now is that is that what Paul's saying? Paul says that's a stumbling block. You're doing that on purpose. You ought to be willing to not eat bacon for five minutes at church to please that person. You ought to please them rather than pleasing yourself. That's really simplifying it down, but I promise you that's really the heart of what Paul is saying here in this passage. So we can't please everyone, and, and there's some indifferent matters that may rise to occasion where people just can't walk together. That is, that's absolutely true. We can't make everyone happy. Anybody that's ever been in my job, in my line of work, knows you can't make everyone happy. I would love to make everyone happy. It's just not possible. Uh, there's a story about that. There's a fable. There's an old man traveling with a child and a donkey. So there's an old man, a child, and a donkey, and they're traveling. And as they pass through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the child was walking behind. The townspeople said, the old man, you're a fool. Why are you not riding the donkey? So he said, well, okay. So he gets on the donkey and he takes out to the next town. When he gets to the next town, what do you think the people said? What kind of man are you? You're sitting on the donkey. You're making that poor little child walk behind you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So he gets off. He puts the child on the donkey and they start to the next town. They get to the next town and they say, are you a fool? That donkey's strong enough. He can carry both of you. You ought to get on there with the child. So he gets on. He goes to the next town. At the next town, they say, what kind of master are you to this animal? You're just taxing this thing to death. That donkey's sweating, carrying both of you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And the last time he was seen, he was carrying the donkey to the next town because he's trying to make everybody happy. He's not going to make everybody happy, right? So there's an element here. We're we're not going to make everybody happy. But in instances where we can... We should be willing to put our wants and needs on indifferent things aside for the good of the whole. That's really what Paul is shooting at here. We can't please everybody in everything. And Paul's not even really suggesting that we try, but he says we should be careful about pleasing ourselves at the expense of others who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our athletics teams this year at TCPS, they've got a, a like a motto for the year and, and for all the different teams and I really like it. It's called I Am Third. So that kind of sounds weird. You know, sports teams usually want to be number one. But their mantra is, I am third. And the reason they say that is because Christ comes first, I'm going to put others second, and I'm going to come third. Well, if you can live that way, you'd live a pretty good life. Put Christ first, others second, and myself 
Third, it's a good way to live. So Paul says we're to please others more than to please ourselves. And then the last part of this, he says um, at the very end of verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. So what does edification mean? Well, I told you I use the word building up. It's to build up. That's the point. So none of us is an island unto ourselves. Did you know that? If you're a member of a church, what you do, how you act, how you treat others in the church, it affects the whole church, the whole thing. So we got to be really careful how we act. And we should be building up, not tearing down. We should always be building up. Weigh every decision, even ones of Christian liberty. And that's the point of this text. Okay, summing it up, I could have saved you all a lot of time and just said this and walked away. I mean, it's really that simple. Weigh every decision, even ones of Christian liberty, by this very high standard. How will it affect my brothers and sisters? Will it build them up or tear it down? Will it bring unity or will it cause division? That's it. That's the whole message of Paul right there. We are to be doing things that build others up, not tearing them down. Even those that are weak in the faith, that are making decisions that we as older, more mature, strong in the faith Christians maybe know better we're still to be patient and bear with them, please them rather than ourselves when we can, and also build them up. Do things that are building them up, not tearing them down. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Aren't you glad that's true? Jesus Christ gave gifts to the church. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We're to be building one another up. That's what the, the, those gifts are for. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Did you know that none of us are there yet? Not one person in the church is there yet. We haven't got there yet. So there's some areas. I was talking to somebody after... Um, preaching this message, and he said, you know, I just I want to put myself in the category of the strong, but I know there's some things I'm weak in. Well, yeah, of course there is. Everybody that Paul called strong in here had weak areas. Absolutely. You know, nobody's saying that that means you've got it all figured out. It says till we come to the unity of the faith. Until that time, what we're supposed to be doing is using the gifts that God has given to edify the body of Christ, to build it up, to continue to build. And we all need a lot of work. There's plenty of construction that's possible in that process. Then down in verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, every joint's important, uh, supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That statement. That's really what Paul's after here that we're edifying one another in love. We're building up instead of tearing down. So, so that's Paul's exhortation to the strong about this situation with the strong and the weak. And before I close on our last point, our last point is going to be from verse 3, and it's about our great example in this. We have an example who has given us the example in this, and we're going to talk about that. But before I go on, since I'm not going to be here to preach on verse 4 later on, I'm going to go ahead and give you a preview right now. There's a way that we do that. And Paul tells us in verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So you want to be strong in the faith? There's a direct correlation between how much you're in the Word of God and how strong you are in the faith. And Paul just says it. He says, you know, you want, you want to be one of these strong who's able to bear the infirmities of the weak? Well, there were things that were written aforetime and those were written for our learning. And that's how you do it. That's how you make those judgment calls. It's not just however you want to do it, right? That's not how we as Christians uh, order our lives. We order our lives after the Word of God. So if you want to be strong, you want to bear the infirmities of the weak, you want to be able to please others rather than yourself and build others up, you better be in the Word of God. You better know the Word of God. You better study the Word of God. And you better be able to apply it, like we said, skillfully to every situation in life. It takes a lot of work, a lot of digging. It's not something that's easy. I wish I could tell you this morning that following Jesus is easy and following the Word of God is easy. It's not. You know why? It goes against our natural nature. It just goes against it. 
So we have to follow after the spirit and follow after those things that we find in the word of God. Now, back to our text in Romans 15, three, we'll close here. It says for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For even Christ pleased not himself. Paul is quoting a psalm, Psalm 69.9, predicting that those who were opposed to what God was doing would take it out on Christ. That's what the psalm says. Psalm 69.9, if you want to write that down and go look it up later. And that's exactly what they did, right? They, they made false accusations against him throughout his entire life. And then when he hung on the cross, they shouted blasphemy at him. They abused him. For even Christ pleased not himself. He sought not his own ease, pleasure, profit, comfort. He sought not any of those things in his earthly ministry while he was here on the earth. What did he seek? He sought to do his father's will and work. Constantly talked about doing the Father's will. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister to others. Didn't have ease and pleasure in his life. Um, he ministered to others instead. He appeared in the form of a servant. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 says he took upon him the form of a servant. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but yet he humbled himself, took upon the form of a servant. So when you think about all of those things and how Christ humbled himself and did not please himself uh, in his in his flesh, in his humanness, he didn't please himself in that. Is it a lot for Paul to ask for us in some indifferent things to say, you know what, that's not really important if it's going to make my my brother stumble? Is it a lot to ask? It's really not a lot to ask. He said, we got a really good example. Christ was willing to put others before Himself. He said, we have an example in, in Jesus Christ who was willing to go to the cross for our sins. It says then in the end, and this is, this is the gospel, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. I think there's, there's some, you know, argument back and forth about what exactly that means. Uh, in the scripture, some of the commentators kind of disagree here and there. I, I happen to agree with John Gill on this. It, those reproaches are by that is meant the sins of the people that were placed on Christ. They were, they were, your sin was placed on Christ. And this is amazing, but his righteousness is placed on you. So my sin, I'm not endorsing everything John MacArthur says, but I'm going to tell you, I really like this quote that he said recently. He was on kind of a talk show thing and they asked him, said, said something about the gospel. And he said, look, let me, let me simplify it as much as I can for you. God treated Christ like he had lived my life and he's going to treat me like I live the life that Jesus Christ lived. Man, that that hits you, doesn't it? That is the beauty of the gospel. And so you see, even in a very practical matter, like Paul is teaching us here about the strong and the weak, it's saturated with the gospel that we treat others. We, we put others' interests before ourselves. that we treat others in a way that maybe they didn't earn. Maybe they didn't deserve it. Maybe they're not right. Maybe they're wrong about their issue uh, with this indifferent thing that's causing trouble. But we're willing to set that aside. Aren't you glad that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly? That's the gospel of sovereign grace. Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. One of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So let's go back and say, well, how does this apply? Let's go back for just a minute in, into what we were learning a minute ago. Remember I told you, you know, some people might say, well, that's not fair that I have to give up something because these people have scruples about it. It's not fair. Remember when I said that? <laughs> it's not fair. Is the gospel fair? In that sense, did Christ get what he had coming to him? Was that fair? Now, God's a just God and everything's done in justice. So the reason Christ was treated that way was because of me and you, not because of him. It was because of me and you. My sin was placed on him and God punished him instead of punishing me. So when we, when we have to give up 
eating some bacon. Not to trivialize it. I'm just taking you back to that word picture so you get the idea. Is that too much? Is it too much to ask? When Christ was willing to take all of my sin and go to the cross so that I could live in His righteousness with Him throughout all eternity. That is not worthy to be compared, to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul. It's not worthy to be compared. We'll close with this text, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's where the gospel ties in. How you treat other people needs to be in the light of the gospel. If, if God can forgive me, then I can overlook that. I can forgive that. If God can, in all the things that I have done, if Christ is willing to take my sin and nail it to the cross, then, then on these matters of indifference, I, I need to really think about how important that is in, in the grand scheme of things. And I need to be willing to take a step back and say that my brother's, my brother's scruples in this issue may or be right or wrong. That's, that's, it's a matter of indifference. But I'm willing to bear with them in that because there's, there's something that's more important is, is that we are all Christians. We're all believers. We're all followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid our sins so that we could live with Him forever. What, what a glorious truth that gospel is. Hope those things have been a blessing to you today. Hope we can all have opportunities to bear one another's burdens, to build up the body of Christ. Uh, thankful for this church and uh, our fellowship with you, uh, Providence and Ripley Church, and love your pastor a lot. And uh, as I close, I want to invite you to something, and I don't have the exact date, so I will get it back to you. And I meant to have it with me, and I forgot. But we are having a series of events in Tupelo. The first one's October the 12th. You're welcome to come to that one if you want to. There will be four throughout the year. Your pastor is the invited speaker at one of those events. And I'm going to get you the date of that. I would love for you to come. He's going to be teaching on anxiety and depression and how that affects young people uh, in our culture today. It's sponsored by the American Family Association. It's in association with them. So some of their people are going to be teaching some of these. But I'll be honest with you, I couldn't think of anybody better than Brother Lewis to teach on that topic. And so he's going to come and teach on that topic. It'll be at one of the churches in Tupelo, but you're welcome to come to that. We'd love to have you come and and be part of that series. And I'll get you some information on that as soon as I can. Lord bless you.